0: Welcome to Cars Yeah! Show number 803. Today on Cars Yeah! we're celebrating the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix. It takes place July 7th through the 15th featuring a week of automotive fun including races, car shows, black tie galas, tours, rallies, and much much more. To learn more about this fantastic event go to the pvgp.org
1: website. The key to a happy life is to die young.
0: Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, John Poutier. John, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am. Here we go. John Poutier is the CEO of the Greater Pittsburgh Auto Dealers Association. The GPADA is a metro dealer association representing over 200 franchised automobile and truck dealers and related industries in Western Pennsylvania. John and his team are the presenting sponsors of the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix, which we're celebrating this week here on Cars Yeah. For over 25 years, John worked in private practice as a consultant in process and people improvement, primarily in the automotive sector. His first client was Saturn. Remember them back in 1985, before they broke ground. And by 2010, he was a bit road weary and tired of living out of a suitcase, and he had the opportunity to use his turnaround talents with the GPADA. The Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix is a 10-plus day event of automotive racing, car shows, black tie galas, a jet center party, tours, and much, much more. So John, I have told our listeners just a little tiny bit about you and the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix. Would you take a brief moment share a little bit more about your career and, of course, your passion for automobiles?
1: Yeah, I've always been a car guy, and uh, as a career, I was an organizational development consultant, if you will. So I went into companies and helped them with their people and their process uh, improvements and kind of fell into, luckily, the auto industry, as you mentioned, the Saturn being my first client back in the 80s. And once you work in an industry, whether it's healthcare or anything else, uh, you tend to be tapped for that in the future because uh, that's where you have hung your hat. Mm-hmm. So I was very fortunate okay. to almost accidentally fall into the auto industry as a as a consultant and worked with J.D. Power and worked with a lot of different projects, the General Motors Standards for Excellence, and and even did some product launches and. And I've spent most of my career in the automotive sector as an independent consultant. And as you mentioned, I, I really, after 25 years of, of being a road warrior and getting older and, and, and actually wanted to spend more time in, in my own bed uh, with my own wife. <laughs> and, and that didn't come out right, did
0: it? Yeah, be careful how you say that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, uh, this opportunity kind of fell into my lap as a result of my book writing. And so my third book was going to be an HR toolkit for auto dealers, because auto dealers are notoriously pretty bad at human resources. And so I thought maybe I could start marketing my services locally and get off the road. And and this position opened up and one of my dealer friends called me and said, hey, I think this might be in your sweet spot because we need a culture change. And it's in the automotive and you already know a lot of the dealers. And so it just it just was the perfect blessing for me to be able to do what I do best in the automotive industry, which I have always loved.
0: Yeah, you know, this is a very cool story because the concept of uh, taking your passion and wrapping it into your career is exactly what Cars yeah is all about. And I had a guest on not too long ago, Kathy Droz, who is an expert in women in the automotive industry. She wrote a book and she's now setting up a little kiosk, if you will, in Lexus dealerships across the country to help those dealerships with their female employees, because that's a whole nother dynamic that happens in the automotive industry, but also how those female employees interact with female customers because more and more women are buying cars these days so this is very very cool and we're going to learn a lot more about you as we continue on your journey and a lot more about the pittsburgh vintage grand prix but first i always like to ask my guests for a success quarter mantra this is nice way to get those inspirational tires turning here on cars yeah so john take the wheel
1: well i always liked one that said success comes from good judgment good judgment comes from experience And experience comes from bad judgment. (laughs) The wheel goes round and round. (laughs) So, you, uh, and really what that is saying is if you never screw up, and learn from it. You're never going to accomplish much because if you don't screw up every once in a while, you're not trying hard enough, and or you're not doing anything different or new or or innovative. And and I've kind of lived by that. I've I've kind of lived a life of out of the box thinking. And my first book, Get Weird, was exactly about that in terms of creative problem solving. Uh, so I like people who who can you know shake things up a little bit. I love these disruptive technologies that come down the pike like Uber and. That, that's what we need yes my first books the very first quote in it is from eleanor roosevelt which i also like and she said that small minds talk about people average minds talk about things and great minds talk about ideas and i just always like that because we do tend to kind of get down in the weeds and 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 not be able to open our minds to new, new thinking and new ideas so those are two mantras that i have tried to live by for my career
0: You know, that second one is near to my heart because my son gave a commencement speech at his high school graduation, and he used that quote as an example. And these days of social media, you wish everybody on Facebook would think about that quote a little bit more when they post things. Yeah, absolutely, Amen. but definitely works in businesses, too, because there's always this conflict happening between people, and I used to run a business as well, and all the time people would come in and complain about Jane or Jim or somebody, and my user response was, well, what would you like me to do to help you with that problem? And typically, they didn't want an answer. They just wanted to complain. So, uh, Exactly. Yeah, most definitely. I'm sure you've seen a lot of that for sure. Well, let's go back in time, John, and talk about a story that instigated your passion for car. Is there a pivotal moment as you remember it in your life when you realized that you were indeed a car guy?
1: Well, my dad was probably the the, the biggest influence. And when I was about eight or nine years old, he built a go-kart for me. And uh, it was an old Briggs & Stratton five-horsepower go-kart. And uh, that was my first introduction to wheels at a very young age, and that he showed me how to take the governor off to make it go faster. <laughs> that was my first introduction to actually uh, the four-wheeled love affair. Uh, my first real car in high school was a 1948 Cadillac hearse. Wow. And it was a monster. Wow. Yeah, I paid a whole $150 for it. My mom actually helped me pay for it. I worked on it with my dad, and he took the heads off. It was a flathead eight with a three-speed on the column, and he kind of got me interested in, in cars and working on them and, and driving them. And then finally, uh, my first motorcycle was in high school as well. I was on an uh, experimental program where I went to school half a day and went to work half a day. And so I used my motorcycle to get to and from school and to and from work. And of course, I had to remove the baffles to make it even louder. <laughs> so when I was had a day off from work, I would circle around the high school doing wheelies and making a lot of noise. And uh, got to be labeled as a public nuisance by the Ohio Police Department. So that was my first claim to fame.
0: You are a disruptor indeed.
1: <laughs> as a result of my being labeled as a public nuisance, I was no only allowed to drive my motorcycle to school and to work during the week.
0: Well, you've been a disruptor your whole life, it's obvious, so uh, it fits the mold as you've grown old here, so I love it. Well, John, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the many roads you've driven down and crawl under the hood and have you share a big challenge or even a big failure that you faced along the way in your career or your life. Most importantly, take us down that path, kind of share that experience with us, but then tell us how you overcame that situation and helped and how it helped you gain even more momentum in your career, your business, and your life.
1: Back in the 80s, I was in the corporate world with PPG Industries. That's how I ended up living in Pittsburgh. I was going also going through a, a long, grueling divorce, and uh, I decided that I had two choices. I could either just roll over into a ditch and, and, you know, drown my sorrows, or I could focus that. It's called creative dissatisfaction. You focus your energy on something more creative and productive And I decided to go back to grad school uh, in Washington, D.C., to American University. But I live in Pittsburgh, so that's about a five-hour commute. Uh, so it was a weekend master's of science program and I bought a conversion van and I essentially lived in my conversion van on weekends for two years to finish my MS degree. So here I am, Mr. Corporate Muckety Muck, living in a van for two years. Wow. And, you know, it was really a great reflection, time to reflect because when you're driving for five hours, you have time to think. And I, what I did was I created in my mind – if I had my own company, what would it be called? What would the logo look like? What would be my mission statement? And I did all that during my commutes to D.C. Uh, so by the time I was done with my master's program, I had created my company in my head and even on paper. And it was really interesting because there was a book at the time that I had a mentor who I was – kind of latching on to who was a wonderful speaker and entertainer. He was called Lecture Theater. And he spoke about the baby boomer generation, which is my generation everybody was blaming the woes of the workplace on the baby boomers, you know, the old hippies and the me generation. And you're kind of hearing that now with millennials. Yes. So I got frustrated and basically said, it's not our fault. It's the the World War II generation that doesn't understand diversity. (laughs) And so long story short, he called and left a message on my answering machine. And I got home from work one night and uh, he said, hey, a a friend of mine just wrote a new book called Chancing It. You might want to read it. And it's about risk taking. And essentially, risk-taking is in the eye of the beholder. He interviewed people like the Walendas, and they, they don't consider themselves risk-takers because they calculate all the odds and, and the probabilities and the safety and, and entrepreneurs. And everybody who think you think are risk-takers don't think of themselves as risk-takers. That was kind of a catapult for me to say, okay, after I graduated from, from grad school, I decided to leave the corporate world.
0: Wow. You know, a lot of great golden nuggets out of that conversation. I appreciate you taking us to a really personal and struggling time in your life, but a lot of great takeaways from that story of, uh, taking chances, taking risks, but I love your correlation with blaming the baby boomers, blaming the World War II folks, and now blaming the millennials and there's always blame (laughs) to be put somewhere when sometimes it's the blame is in the mirror and just taking those uh, steps in your life to change your life and that's definitely what you did. So awesome story. I appreciate you sharing that. Let's shift gears and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share what I call a career aha moment. It's a time when those headlights kind of illuminate the way for a new direction or a new idea that you have and tell us us about your aha moment.
1: Well, yeah, I kind of alluded to that in the prior question, but uh, my aha moment was was when I finally cut the cord and went out on my own and and really took a chance. And that's going back to the Chancing It book. There was also a book that that kind of really. Turned my lights on at the time, and it's a classic and was a classic for many years called The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. And I bought probably 20 copies of that book to give to various friends and colleagues who were going through similar periods of questioning and and decision making about their life and their career. And if, if you name one book that made me decide to take the chance again, The Road Less Traveled, I would highly recommend it. To help me make that decision and say, okay, taking the, the road more traveled, you know, will get you nowhere that other people have already been. So I highly would recommend that to anyone who's embarking on any kind of a major change in their life, whether it's divorce or death or career. It's a very uh, universal truth kind of book. One of the best decisions I ever made in my life was to is to go out on my own. Short of you know marrying my second wife, who is the reason I also wanted to get off the road. I actually uh, love my second wife, <laughs> 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 and uh, so yes, those are those are probably the aha moments for me was starting my own business, and he uh, remarried.
0: You know, that is a great book, and I read that book a long time ago. I should bring it out and read it again, but I've had that book mentioned by several guests, and we're going to talk about books in a few moments, and I want to talk about the books you wrote, too, because I was unaware of that, which is absolutely spectacular. But let's talk about a proudest career moment. I would assume you've had many because you've helped so many companies come into a better light to improve, to enhance the way they're doing things, but is there one of those that stands out for you?
1: Well, in, after I started my company, First Step, I'm, I was doing a lot of speaking engagements and motivational speaking and training and consulting. And to take your practice to the next level, if you're a, if you're a published author, it really helps. But you can't force that. I, I wrote the book. It kind of wrote itself. And it was called Get Weird. And, I, you know, weirdos are, are a, a perception. Everybody's a weirdo that's not like you. So I, I tried to take that concept, and it was a cathartic experience for me just to write it because I had so many ideas and and, and kind of weird best practices that I had accumulated over my career that I wanted to put them in a book. It was 101 Innovative Ways to Make Your Company a Great Place to Work, and it was a very grueling process. I, Going back to what we talked about before in terms of overcoming a challenge, I was working full-time. I was trying to write this book, and it, it's a book is a very difficult thing to do when you have to work full time. So I was getting up at three in the morning and that's when my creative lights always go on. I wish for this day, I wake up at 3 a.m. with ideas and I wish at times it wouldn't happen, <laughs> but I ended up being sleep deprived and didn't even know it. And sleep deprivation is kind of a weird thing to experience because everybody else knows it, but you, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I had a, I had a very short fuse and I was, uh, you know, lightheaded and having to pull over on the side of the road in the middle of the day. And, and I ended up actually being hospitalized for it. So it was turned out to be OK because the book did very well. Uh, but I went on to write two more books after that. The second book was Weirdos in the Workplace. So you can see the theme going here
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and the Weirdos in the Workplace. I wrote during the the, uh, the millennial uh, in, entrance into the workplace and it's kind of tongue in cheek that, you know, going back to a weirdos, anybody that's not like you. So that's why there's so many of them out there. Uh, every generation thinks the next generation is going to hell. Uh, it was true back in the World War Two generation, the baby boomers. And it, it, it seems to repeat itself. And the millennials are now the new target. Now, there are some good ones. There are some bad ones. But that's true of every generation. And it's incumbent upon you as a leader to get the best out of them, no matter who they are. And just as a side note, the weirdos in the workplace is is I have what's called the weird worth ratio. The the more you're worth, the more you can be weird. And if you think about creative types, you know, and ad people, and, and musicians, and artists, and innovators, there's some whacked out people out there. But it's 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 if you channel that into something productive and positive, organizations should be more tolerant of. Kind of offbeat behavior as long as it's not destructive or illegal or immoral, but not everybody should have to look and act and think alike and that 's how the old corporate world was when I was coming through the corporate world and I, Thank goodness when you look at Silicon Valley and places like where you are, they understand that you know it, it goes beyond just tattoos and piercings it, it, it's term it's lifestyle it's thinking it's, it's all that so Hopefully we're, we're, we're improving in that arena, but that's what my second book was about was, was capitalizing on, on weirdness.
0: Ah, oh, bravo. I love that. I think it's great. And, uh, yeah, definitely is a great idea, great concepts, especially for maybe it is older people to think about. Because, yeah, you do get kind of trapped in your ways, thinking your ways are the best. So uh, I've got to get my hands on your books and read them. I, they sound very, very interesting, especially, as I mentioned, I ran a company for years with a lot of employees and dealing with all the different idiosyncrasies of people and values of people and how you perceive people. Excellent, excellent. I love it. Well, let's go back in time again and have a little bit more fun. You talked about your first car being a hearse. That's quite interesting. But let's talk about your first really special car, that first car that you got that you said, ah, this is what I've wanted for a long time, and maybe share a memory with that vehicle.
1: Yeah, the car that I had the longest as my daily driver when I went to college was a 1968 Austin Healy Sprite. And I'm six foot three. Uh, and so it, it, I looked kind of like a Shriner clown getting out of that thing. <laughs> and it was I loved it. It was a, a British racing green sports car. But I lived in Northeast Ohio and it was totally impractical in the winters. But I drove it year round. And I, you know, if, if anybody's had a British or had a British car, they know that they leak like a sieve. And so you always have to carry a towel and a blanket and a squeegee and a scraper. So when you're driving it, you can see out the window. <laughs> yes, yes. From that time forward, I always had my, my toy car and then a, a daily driver. And back in those days, my daily drivers were real beaters because I couldn't afford a nice car if I had a toy. But I decided, you know what? I don't care what my daily driver looks like or, or, or you know, it's a it's just a functional tool. But when I get my toy out, I can it's new every time. So, yeah, my good old Austin Healey Sprite was kind of my first identifying car.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine seeing a guy 6'3", sitting in a Sprite. That must have been kind of interesting. I hope you had one of those fancy hats with a little tassel on the top. That's <laughs>
1: no, <laughs> not quite. I, went to, I had the first two forty Z too, which was you know a little a little step up at the time, but it was it was pretty uh, fast in the in the time. But the two forty Z was my next car after I got out of out of college. Ah, oh, very
0: cool! When I was a kid, I had a detailing business, and one of my customers had one of the first two forty z 's and she let me drive it back to my house. I was like, "Ah, oh, this thing is so cool, so very nice, very interesting cars. Well, how about a seller 's remorse story? Is there a car you 've owned that you've let go that you really wish you had back? Is it that sprite or that Z or is there another one?
1: Well, this is a heck of a story and i 'll try to make it brief, but my wife started a business in senior living, and we she came to me and said i 'd really like to go out with uh and start my own business. And so I agreed to mortgage the house uh, several times for her to get started. And then once her business became very successful and she had investors, she knew that my dream car was the old AC Shelby Cobra. And I couldn't obviously afford a real one that'd be millions of dollars. So she secretly took me down to North Carolina to build my own, uh, to thank me for having trusted her and investing in her and having faith in her and it's uh it's is the high probably the highest end AC Shelby Cobra you'll ever see. It's a superformance super Roush aluminum four twenty seven, five hundred and fifty horsepower, twenty one hundred pounds, and it's a it's a monster. And I had it for about seven or eight years and somebody wanted to buy it. And I thought, you know what, I had a lot of fun with it. I haven't killed anybody with it. Maybe it's time to move on to something else. And I sold it to a guy locally here. And then I saw it at an event at the Fitzgerald Vintage Grand Prix, in fact. The next season, he had it there, and he just, what he did to it made me sick, even though everybody's got their own taste. But he essentially removed the the, the wheels and tires from 15 inches and put 20-inch wheels on it, took the bumpers off. And then, long story short, I bought it back and I even ended up paying more for it than I sold it for. <laughs> so that tells you how much it meant to me. Actually, my wife was kind of bummed that I sold it because of the emotional attachment to it, and it was the car that I needed half back in my garage, and, and I do, and I will never sell it again. Even if I get too old to drive it, I'm not going to sell it because it has sentimental value to me, and it was my dream car.
0: Wow, well, you did marry the right woman—that's for sure, first and foremost. And Lance Stander, super performance has been a guest here on cars. Yeah, I know him well. They build absolutely spectacular cars. And yeah, when you when you let a car go, and then the next owner kind of alters it a bit—that are different than your style. You kind of like, ah, it's like that old girlfriend dating some other guy. <laughs> you know, it's like, ugh, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah, like my that. Wife-
1: yeah, My wife was saying, you you got to get over it. She said, it's not your car anymore. You can't tell him how to fix his own car.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a hard thing to do for sure. Well, Awesome story. I'm so happy you have that car back. And I know that you sent me some pictures. So the, for those listeners out there, go to John show notes page on the Cars yeah! website and you'll see a picture of that beautiful uh, Cobra. It is spectacular. Well, let's talk about today and tomorrow. Let's talk about what has you excited and fired up about the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix. How come your organization is involved and what are you looking forward to for this year's event?
1: Yeah, that's one of the, another one of those serendipitous things where you know not I I just don't believe in accidents anymore. I've been involved with the Grand Prix almost its entire 35 years, just as a participant and a volunteer and a car guy, and I've known the executive director probably for just about that many years too. And when I took this position at the Greater Pittsburgh Auto Dealers, we were we have a foundation that does charitable giving, and we always have a charity of choice that we give the, the lion's share of our our monies to, and The Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix, uh, about five years ago, uh, their presenting sponsor just wasn't doing a whole lot more each year to help it grow. And I approached the executive director and we were looking for a new charity because we didn't feel like we had the right charity either. And we're the biggest car you know, we run the Pittsburgh International Auto Show, which is the largest car show in the region, and they have the largest motorsports show. And it just was the perfect marriage. And we approached them and they said, Absolutely, we'd love to have you be our sponsor. Our car dealers love it because it's a car event and it goes to a good cause the Autism Society of Pittsburgh and the Allegheny Valley School to help. Uh, challenged, uh, individuals. So we've, we're now into our fourth season with them and it has just exploded. We gave a check at last year's, we have a, an event called dancing with the cars, which is a, a private showing of the Pittsburgh international auto show the night before it opens to the public. And it's a charity fundraiser. And we combine our resources with the Pittsburgh vintage grand prix And this past February, we presented a check for $405,000 to the charities. Wow. That is just phenomenal. And we couldn't do it without this, this partnership. And it's just been a marriage made in heaven because these are car guys working on car events with other car guys and gals. I should say gals, too, because we have some really phenomenal female, female racers as well. Uh, so... It's coming up, and uh, our dealers really have embraced it, and the, the Grand Prix has over 1,200 volunteers who actually meet in our building. Uh, so it's it's just really become a good partnership.
0: Oh, it's absolutely spectacular. I love it when these kinds of things come together. They just make sense, and that's a huge amount of money that you've raised. Absolutely Brilliant. I love it. Kudos to you and the team there and everybody with the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix and your organization as well that uh, puts this together. It's just a wonderful, wonderful way to combine your passion for cars into great charitable giving, into your business, and it just comes around so nice. Absolutely spectacular. Well, here's a very introspective question for you, John. If you were a car, what kind of car would John be and why?
1: Oh, my I, I cannot pick one car to be. I If I were a car, I'd probably have a multiple personality disorder. Uh, and right now, I, I actually have kind of what I call the yin and yang of cars. In addition to my, my totally technology-free, pure muscle car, the AC Shelby Cobra, I also bought one of the first Jaguar F Type R Coupe, as they call it, mm. is also a 550 horsepower car, but it has—it's like driving a video game. It's—it's it's so the opposite of the Cobra that has all the creature comforts of air and cruise and and all the—it's like like I said, driving like driving a video game. I can adjust the suspension, the steering, the exhaust, all on a touch screen. So I've kind of got both ends of the spectrum, and it's—and they both are equally exciting to drive for different reasons every time. So. I am kind of a yin and yang guy. In fact, my logo for my old company was the Chinese yin yang. Hmm. If you don't know what the yin and the yang represents, it's bringing together opposites to create a synergy. And you know, like man and woman, life and death, and and I always say pro and con. The opposite of progress is congress. Uh, that's a joke.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got it. I got it. Oh <laughs> <I'll> wait,
1: <laughs> those two cards probably represent my personality the best.
0: Very interesting and unique answer. I love it. Well, John, up next is the last lap, but before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's car yeah sponsors. What's the worst thing for your car's interior? No, it's not that milkshake the kids spilled in the back seat. It's the sun. Harmful UV rays cook your automobile's interior hour after hour when it's parked outside, even on a cloudy day. What's the solution? Covercraft sunscreens. They protect your dash, seats, and interior finishes from those damaging UV rays while keeping the interior temperature tolerable, even on the hottest summer days. No more painfully sizzling seats and steering wheels for you. They unfold quickly and easily install, stay where you put them, and are custom pattern for an exact fit. The foam core acts as a cooling insulator, and you can get yours in different colors and finishes. And they even fold up easily and store under your seat or on the floor. I've used Covercraft sunscreens for years, and they are a fast and easy solution that protect my beloved cars when they're not in the garage. Learn more and order yours at Covercraft.com. Want to protect your entire vehicle? Get a car cover from Covercraft. They have those too. That's Covercraft.com. And tell them Mark sent you. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over... Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. member, Finra Sipic. Are you looking for a way to get your products or services into the ears of thousands of automotive enthusiasts around the globe? I can help. This is Mark Green here at Cars, yeah. And I'd be honored to be an influencer and ambassador for your brand in a unique and personal way. Five days a week? Thousands of subscribers and listeners enjoy the Cars Yeah! podcast and website. Contact me today and I'll show you how at mark at com, or connect with me through the Cars Yeah! website at carsyeah.com. Okay, John, we are back and we're entering what I call the last lap. And I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers, something you're used to doing in that Cobra of yours. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received?
1: Well, I've done a, a fair number of racing schools, and I don't consider myself a professional racer, but I do love to learn how to drive better. And one of the advices, advices, advices I don't know if that's a word or not, one of the uh, tips I got was when racing, always focus on where you're going to be, not where you are, as you're anticipating a curve or a line or whatever. And I, I kind of associate that with a quote that I used to use in my speaking Wayne Gretzky the the world class hockey player when he was asked about the key to his goal scoring success he said I don't skate to where the puck is I skate to where the puck is going to be mm. and I kind of I love that because you're getting in front of the curve you know you're not reacting you're proacting and and that's probably good advice in in driving even if you're not driving professionally but just on the road uh, especially if you text how do you know where you're going to be if you're not looking
0: Yes. And also another one is why the windshield's bigger than the rearview mirror, because you should always be looking ahead down the road. But yeah, definitely having gone through a racing school and having done a lot of performance driving, that's what they always teach you is you don't want to look at where you are. It's where you want to go. So look through that corner, look far down the road. Now, how about a personal habit? Is there one that you have that you think has contributed to your successes over the years?
1: Well, at the risk of sounding maybe, I hope I don't sound arrogant when I say this, but I like to surround myself with people who enhance my life, and that I can enhance theirs as well. And I, I don't have a, a large quantity of good friends, but I have high quality. And, you know, I I just really like to be around people who are, I won't say like-minded, I don't really need to have yes people, but people who are positive and fun and really, you know, have a zest for life. And uh, so I think the, the people you surround yourself with can make or break your life and your success and your happiness
0: you know mom was right when i was growing up she was always saying you know pick your friends wisely hang out with people that will challenge you and i think it was jim Rohn who has a great quote you're the average of the five people you spend most of your time with so uh kind of the relates to the law of averages but uh, i would agree with you very much so that's so important now, how about a resource there's lots of great resources these days is there one that stands out for you
1: Well, at the risk of being redundant, I would just repeat what I said before, the age-old book, The Road Less Traveled. It's a timeless classic, and I think anybody could benefit from reading it. There was one uh, book, another book back in the day when I was in college, called the road, or called the uh, called Driven, the American Four-Wheeled Love Affair. And uh, it's probably dated now, but it's back in the heyday of the of the automobile when the big three were, you know, you could have so many different combinations and permutations of vehicles and colors and styles and, and options, and it was it's just a really fun book if you're a car person, not necessarily a life coaching book but it's a if you're a car person it's it's really an interesting kind of a overview of the industry in the day it really was in its glory now if you could have a
0: drink with anyone in the automotive industry or field living or deceased who would that be well,
1: outside of Carroll Shelby, I would say my dad, uh, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't a famous racer and didn't work in the auto industry, he, he fostered and facilitated my, my early sp- passion for speed and cars, and he made great sacrifices in his time and his resources for me have a better life than he did and that's the old you know the the world's greatest generation these are people who never took they always gave and and he sacrificed for me to have that go-kart and my motorcycle and my hearse and and you know took the time to take me under his wing and and make me have an appreciation for cars and and life in general so uh i would say my dad
0: yeah boy you, you hit on a a nerve with me i just lost my father last month and yeah if only to have another sit down time a little talk uh, how valuable that would be so it's a great lesson for those of you out there that still have your parents or people that are close to you spend more time with them because they won't be with us forever that's for sure well we talked about books and you've recommended some great books but i'd love for you again to share the books that you've written so that our listeners could get their hands you mentioned three is that
1: right Yes. The first one was written in the dot .com 90s called Get Weird, 101 Innovative Ways to Make Your Company a Great Place to Work. And it's just all kinds of easy, simple, inexpensive ways to make work fun and and creative. And it's a fun read. My my publicist called it playful. My writing style, he called it playful, which makes it easy. It's not a textbook. Uh, It's really kind of a irreverent in a way, but fun read. And the second book written After the dot-com 90s and when the millennials started to enter the workplace, we called Weirdos in the Workplace the New Normal, uh, How to Thrive in the Age of the Individual. It's really about trying to uh, change the way we look at the world of work in terms of the diversity. And diversity is not about race and sex and national origin. It's about individuality. And not all white men think and act alike, and not all women think and act alike. And I hate those concepts because they put everybody in one bucket. And that's the opposite of diversity. Diversity is individuality. And that's where the Weirdos of the Workplace book comes in. And the third one is really more of a a, a toolkit. It's called the Everything HR Kit. And it's for companies to be able to build an HR department from scratch and the book actually has a CD in it that has uh, tons and tons of tools, handbooks, workbooks, job descriptions. So it's a really more of a pragmatic uh, toolbox.
0: Well, kudos to you for writing three books. Oh my gosh. And, uh, I'm so happy that, uh, you figured out on the second two books how to do it without depriving yourself of sleep. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine the challenges you face going through that, but I'll uh, make sure that all these books are listed on John's show notes page here on the Karzia yeah website at Karzia.com slash John. And his last name is P U T. Z I E R for those of you looking for those books, but I've made it really easy. There's a great place on the Carjow yeah website called Guest Recommended Books where these books, the other books that John has recommended and all the past 803 guest books are listed there for quick, easy, clicks to buy. Great resource on the Carjaw yeah website. All right, John, we're up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a bit of a doozy. If you could have only one very cool collector car in your garage, it's not something you can sell to buy a bunch of other cars with, so that trick's off the table. But money's no object today here at Carja. Yeah. I'm going to buy you whatever you like, and I'm going to let you keep that Cobra in the corner. We'll just not think about that. Forget about it. Put it over there in the corner so you don't have to let that go because you've been through that painful experience once. What would that very special car be and why?
1: Well, it would be an original 1965 AC Shelby Cobra. Mine is a replica, and I love it. Uh, but I think one of the most iconic cars, and has always been my dream car. And I love the history behind it with Carroll Shelby and Ford, and and uh, AC Motors in Bristol, England. And it's just it's got so much history and and provenance that uh, I'd love to have an original. Uh, multi-million dollar ac shelby cobra just sitting there <laughs>
0: wouldn't that be nice oh my gosh yeah well i will get to work on that for you and <laughs> i'll let our listeners know that coming up next week here on Cars. Show, i've got gary patterson who's the uh, ceo at shelby american where they build the continuation cars and all the shelby kind of things so i'm going to talk to gary for you and see if he might have some links to some original shelby cobras this is not going to be easy or cheap for me is it oh my gosh those are expensive cars. But for you, John, I think that's a car that you deserve and you would love to have for sure. Well, you've taken us on an awesome ride today. I've really enjoyed learning more about you, the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix, the organization that you're part of. And I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey with the Cars yell listeners. Could you offer us one parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you rip off into the sunset in that 65 AC Shelby Cobra
1: Yeah. And going back to one of my books in terms of how we stay creative and innovative, there's a tendency to get rigid as we get old and resistant to change. And there's this quote that I loved, and it said, the key to a happy life is to die young, (laughs) but to delay it for as long as possible.
0: (laughs) That is awesome, awesome advice. I love that. Oh, very nice. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about your organization, your business, and of course, the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix?
1: Well, our website is the acronym G-P-A-D-A dot com. That stands for Greater Pittsburgh Automobile Dealers Association. Uh, Just Google my name because I've got a lot of history out there that uh, past lives before I came here seven years ago. But uh, that's how you can find out more about what we do and our association with the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix.
0: Awesome, great. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything John has shared on his show notes page at Carsia.com slash johnputzier, P-U-T-Z-I-E-R is how you spell his last name. So just go to carsyad.com or just type John in the search box and that page will pop up. And if you're going to be anywhere near the Pittsburgh area coming up here soon, you've got to check out the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix. Oh, my gosh, this event, this week of events, week plus of events is beyond the imagination. So check it out. John, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your experiences with me and the Cars Y'all listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you at the Pittsburgh Vintage
1: Grand Prix. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: Pleasure's all mine. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered, commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah!